Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here today for our webinar. I'm going to be your MC, Mike. I'm the community manager here at Manufacture.com. Manufacture.com helps consumer brands source, manufacture, and, fi and finance their inventory. With over 700 vendor vetted vendors across 25 countries, we make the manufacturing process a breeze for consumer brands. And you can ma manage the entire process from one dashboard. We're also really excited to be joined by our partners at Extensive and Passport. Extensive is a visionary technology leader focused on creating the future of omnichannel fulfillment. And Passport is an international shipping carrier built for e-commerce companies and their three PLs, including Kylie Cosmetics, Native Deodorants, and Bombas. Now, this will be three 20-minute conversations back-to-back, -back, focusing on the three stages of operational growth, manufacturing, fulfillment, and expanding internationally. So our speakers today are Pernay Srinivasan, who is a CEO manufactured and has 25 years of sourcing, manufacturing, and logistics experience with consumer brands. David Miller, who's the vice president of strategy at Extensive, and David Field, who is the head of strategic accounts at Passport. Um, so manufacturer, we're going to be focusing on the manufacturing side. Uh, when I talk with uh, David Miller at Extensive, it'll be more, more so focused on 3PLs and the fulfillment uh, side of things. And with David Field, we'll be talking about what things to consider as you're expanding internationally. Um, so we're going to kick things off here with um, with our first guest, Pranay, and we're going to be focusing on um, on, many, on on the ins and outs of manufacturing, or really as much we can get to within only 20 minutes. But this is great. Pranay, thank you so much for joining us here today. How are you? I'm good. My pleasure. Thank you. So if you're if you're starting out, you're you're a consumer brand that's that's kind of starting out. What should be your process to find the right manufacturers for your business, and maybe the right way to diligence who your manufacturer you want to work with? I think that it starts with what kind of product you're trying to make. I think there are two types of products: one that's already existing in the world that you're trying to improve, and the other is a product that doesn't exist in the world that you're trying to make from scratch. And the type of manufacturer you work with totally depends on that. Now, you could also have some volume constraints, you could have some pricing constraints, you could have some budget constraints, and that actually narrows your field a little bit on the types of products you can start with. And I always like to tell prospective customers or even prospective brands that your biggest friend is a market hypothesis that is tested with real demand. And once you've figured out the real demand, you can then basically figure out how to make that product. If you start with trying to make a product first before you've gone to test hypothesis, sometimes that can be a very expensive road to go down. And so if you've figured out your market hypothesis and you know the product you're trying to make, if it's an existing product, you want to go and try and find factories and vendors that have past experience making those or look at countries that are used to making those from the raw material or from the actual product itself. If it's something that's new, then you basically break it down into its components and then you figure out where those components come from and then you figure out where to assemble the product. Like, for example, if it's a hardware product, you are looking at China, Taiwan, Korea. If it's a wood product, you're looking at Indonesia, you're looking at China, you're looking at India. If it's a stainless steel product, it's a totally different world. So it all depends on the product you start from. Yeah, and that, that also makes sense in terms of also thinking about demand and how to actually de-risk that um, as well. 
um, for, uh, for, uh, from that standpoint, whether it's, you know, doing pre-orders, for example, before you even produce the, the product to see if, you, if there is actually demand for, um, uh, for it um, to not just go out and just, you know, um, order a bunch of inventory and, and create a product that maybe it, it, it might be the case that actually no one actually wants that, that product. When you're, when you're thinking about it as well, and by the way, if, uh, for those listening live, um, if you do have questions, feel free to, uh, 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 to send them through in the chat. Um, would love to try to get to um, to all your questions. Um, but at what point inside, I know that you mentioned like a few different geographies depending on what you're trying to build, but how, at what point or size of your business should you be thinking about geography di diversification and making sure that your manufacturing partners aren't in only one region of the world? Yeah, I think of that from a switching cost point of view. If you think about your last six months or your next six months purchase volume and the total purchase volume you're going to make over those next six months uh, is more than the cost it will take for you to add a second geography because it takes about six to nine months to build and establish a supply chain. Uh, to, to find vendors, to vet them, to perfect them, to make sure the vendors are right quality, the products great, the shipping on time. You've done a couple of six to nine months is the normal time it takes you could do it in three months or sometimes it can take 18 months if you made a lot of mistakes but let's just say six to nine months is the right time if your time spent building the supply chain for those six to nine months is less than the amount of money you're going to spend over the next six to nine months buying product then you should diversify the product the business otherwise you should not if the savings from diversification are the, the, the growth or basically the additive value. So let's just say you buy a million dollars of cost of goods right now. And you mm -hmm. want to basically grow the business to $2 million. And your cost of finding a new supply chain is say $200,000. Then you should switch because you're going to basically move to a second geography for an additional million dollars. You're going to spend a million dollars in that new country. And your cost of switching is $200,000 or adding another geography. That's when I suggest you do it. If you're only doing a million dollars and you're going to grow $200,000, then don't switch because your cost of switching is too low. So no, that makes sense. So. And yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, and I'm really glad you brought up switching costs because I feel like I sometimes talk to entrepreneurs and they say that they might have a broken supply chain and that, um, but in your mind uh, that, you know, costs have increased that um, uh, maybe it's shipping prices, maybe it's for materials, uh, maybe it's production. Um, in your mind, when is the supply chain truly broken? And what does that kind of mean to you? If you get three bad shipments from a vendor, your supply chain is broken. Okay. So three bad, but how, like, how, how do you think about as well, or, or, or kind of, how should you be thinking about doing like a, like, like a cost analysis when it comes to, um, if your costs have increased by a vendor versus looking and, and, and switching manufacturing to a new vendor? So that's a really good question. And we face this all the time. Um, we tell all our customers that if you ever try to do a race to the bottom, you'll end up bankrupt like all the big box retailers that went bankrupt. The big box retailers actually did not go bankrupt because they were trying, they didn't have a good cost of goods. They went probably, a lot of them went bankrupt because they didn't know how to create demand on the front end. And nine times out of 10, if you if you have a, cost, a person looking for a lower cost of goods, it's because they are trying to optimize a product that they can't really sell through fast enough. 
if you're trying to optimize cost of goods as an optimization strategy, you will never hear Lululemon tell you, tell a vendor that I want you to pay basically uh, charge me $2 less, but do three times the amount of goods because they are trying to optimize for the right quality of the product. Neither will Uniqlo do that. And I know the factories these companies work at. The factories are very happy. They work for years and years with these customers because these customers are fair customers because they do not have a demand problem. Every time a customer comes to me and says, I want to lower my cost by 30%, you know that it's hiding something else in the business. Now, there are obvious inefficiencies when you go from buying, doing 1,000 units to 10,000 units to 100,000 units to a million units. So I don't want my, my comments to be taken out of context. I'm talking about like if you're doing a million units and you want to switch vendors because doing the same million units with another vendor will save you $10, 10% then the chances are you're trying to optimize the wrong metric in the business. Can, you, can we dive into if, if a customer maybe comes to you or a brand comes to you and says, hey, we we, we really need to lower our cogs by, you know, let's say 30%, mm-hmm. as you said. Um, mm-hmm. What are different kind of um, things that actually they could be hiring hiding from their business? Maybe is there is there pricing of other products might be, um, might actually not be right? Or what do you think in terms of that, in terms of what they actually could be hiding? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's two types of cost reductions. One is an optimization of cost. The other is inefficient, removing inefficiencies. We love removing inefficiencies, and that is a totally different type of cost reduction than taking a really healthy, good, strong vendor and trying to force them to make cheaper product. Two different things. What I talked about when you want to lower your cost on an optimization point of view is not the way to go. But if you are a growing business and you've stuck with a vendor who gave you very high prices, or if you buy locally in the US, or you buy from China and they have a tariff, or you're buying from a country that doesn't actually make the raw material or the components of their own, and you are trying to basically figure out what the lowest price is. Three reasons why the customer wants you to lower price, wants us to lower prices. Either their competition is coming and it is cutting the market or basically lowering costs. Either they realize that their product could actually sell a lot more if they figure it out, or they priced it wrong because now they have to sell wholesale and they didn't put in enough margin and now they need 30% from somewhere because they have to support a keystone wholesale price. Got it. Got it. No, that, 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 um, that makes a ton of sense. How, I mean, in terms of like, Increased competition. Um, you know, I've I've talked to a couple brands now who say that um, where they've actually run into trouble is they've been selling, for example, on 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 Amazon, and mm-hmm. um, sales are going great. They're they're, they're kind of flying and, and everything's doing well. And then their manufacturer, they realize that their manufacturer is actually selling the exact same product and undercutting them, and um, and. Uh, and they can't do anything about it. They can't really switch manufacturers. Um, uh, they have a tough time with that. And maybe the switching costs are way too high. Um, what would be, I guess, your advice when like, when something like that happens? And how do you think about as well managing the relationship between the brand and, and the manufacturers? Yeah, so I see three reasons why that happens. The first reason that happens is because the manufacturer isn't just getting the amount of volume that they feel to be a happy partner because the supplier doesn't want to be in the Amazon sales business. They do that because they see the amount of volume that actually should be selling and the customer's not selling it. And so they basically get in and try to boost their own volumes because now they know the, the recipe. So they want to try and grow that business. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that 
they might think that they're not getting the price they wanted and the customer beat them down on price. And now they figure out they get a better wholesale price with Amazon with everything. So they're trying to go straight into Amazon because remember Amazon is like a controlled Petri dish container where it's like a closed ecosystem where you can just put stuff in and Amazon helps you boost it if you put in a few dollars. So it's like essentially Amazon will just be like, okay, you're cheaper. I'll get you in there. It's the same product. The third reason why this happens is that you as a brand haven't differentiated yourself enough in both inside the product, in the business, as well as in your storytelling to be able to help customers understand why you're different. I would never buy a ripoff Apple product on Amazon. You see the AirPods out there. You see all the different pods out there. If what was true, and I know Apple is a very interesting example because they're a $2 trillion company, but like, let's just say Bombas or Jambies or any brand that you can think of. Buying the generic version of the product versus the branded version of the product revolves around storytelling and differentiation. It's the reason why you go in and ask for a mattress by name or ask for a product by name or, you know, whatever glasses by name. It's because the storytelling differentiates that product and people get that warm fuzzy feeling of building a brand. And that storytelling is probably the third reason why people will care about the generic version of it because you will always find bargain hunters and body feeders. It's why Ross exists. It's why TJ Maxx exists. It's because they want to find the generic version of the product at a cheaper price. I th- that's a great point. I, I really liked, I totally, I mean, have you built like brand, brand equity? Have you, have you created like a, a, a differentiated, maybe a brand experience? But I think ultimately to your point, when you think about the model, the business model of like a manufacturing f- facility versus the, the model for the brand, Obviously, you want to sell. Obviously, you need to sell volume, but for the brand, you're you're making your money on that margin. And for manufacturing, you're not making much mar- margin. It's really on the actual volume that you're doing. So if you if you feel if they feel like, hey, we're actually you're actually not delivering enough volume for them, like can understand. But at the same time, that's not their business model in terms of being a brand. It's uh, mm. um uh so um that that makes a lot of sense. We. We have a question here that I don't think we can answer directly, but um, I am looking for a domestic manufacturer that makes disposable diapers. Can you recommend a U.S.-based uh, company? I don't think we can recommend a U.S.-based company on the spot, but I think this is a really good question about what it makes sense for to have a manufacturing partner domestically and actually have and actually source and manufacture and and produce domestically versus looking to overseas. So CPG products and manufacturing in the U.S. have come a long way. Um, we are looking, we're seeing more and more people wanting to make, like, you know, we had somebody who wanted to make, you know, um, you know, detergent and somebody who wanted to make food and somebody wants to make packaged goods. Like, there's a lot of reshoring of manufacturing that's supposed to be happening. It's just not catching on as fast as it should. So to answer the question in the chat, to be able to create a plant, that makes disposable diapers with the right components and the right materials that you can guarantee a volume for. You're looking at an investment of between half a million and a million dollars. Now, if the plant already exists, nine times out of 10, they normally have an exclusive for the type of diaper that they're trying to build because somebody's already swamped them with volume. And the interesting thing about making USA product is the more automated and mechanized the product is, the lower the gap in price between the US and the international products are. So if I were to produce a disposable diaper in China, or let's just call them wipes or whatever you want to call them, any mm-hmm. hygiene product, China would probably be at a 80% of the US price over the right amount of volume. The problem is we are so used to buying off Alibaba and AliExpress in small quantities in white label products that the idea of having to buy a million disposable diapers is like anathema to basically a brand who hasn't proven their volume yet. 
And that is the barrier to entry to manufacturing in the US is either you go in with a highly unique product that you've curated and you know that it's going to get off the ground, or you go in with a significant volume that allows you to cover the cost of setting up an infrastructure that allows you to service the market. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, and I, I, I think that's a great answer. Um, how, how also like, I think we've seen definitely, you know, onshoring um, happening certainly with um, the supply chain uh, supply chain crunch that's happened in the past two years, and um, a lot of companies are kind of rethinking if they should actually if it, if they should actually manufacture domestically versus abroad. I mean, I know you've been in manufacturing for you know a long, long time, and what what are maybe what are maybe other things that you've learned or how you think about even even with manufactured and how you think about helping customers with manufacturing um, uh, or considerations, considering of what happened the past two years um, from the supply chain crunch? Yeah, that's a great question. So manufactured is right in the middle of that. We're in the process mm -hmm. of actually building a bunch of near shore facilities, last mile facilities, logistics facilities. We're working on a lot of interesting ways to try and make it uh, easy and, 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 uh, I'm not going to say it's, we're trying to make, you know, fulfillment easy and actually last mile really flexible, but trying to use cost advantages of components made overseas as well. And I think that that's the happy mix that you're going to see over the next few years, which is how do I actually go long on the components that are needed for my product and then basically use that price advantage along with a lot of nearshoring to do flexible last mile. So we are working on a, a nearshore kind of a flexible location, both in Mexico as well as in the U.S., where we are going to basically buy components offshore and then bring them in and then hold the components instead of holding finished products and then do rapid nearshore assembly, last mile assembly to do weekly and monthly shipments. So you're not carrying more than 30 to 90 days of finished product inventory, but you're carrying 6 to 12 months of raw material and component inventory. That allows you to play the long and short game because in manufacturing, your component values come down drastically as you give them buying commitments, whereas your finished product value goes down drastically if you overbuy. And therefore, you have to basically be, I don't want any inventory risk on my finished product, but I'm willing to take inventory risk on components that if something goes sideways, I can either reuse them or sell them or re reutilize them. That's the strategy that we're trying to work on for a lot of our few of our customers, and I think you'll see a lot more of that as it goes forward. It makes sense. And just so I understand, what what do you say? Um, and the audience understands when you say last mile, you're you're talking about um, shipping and logistics all the way uh, kind of up to the three PL on the manufacturing side. Is that is, is that right? And maybe even the fulfillment inside the three PL, thanks to our friends at Expensive. <laughs> Love to see that. Love to see that. Um, and in terms of on the financing side, when in, when um, on, on the financing side, um, when when you think about inventory, so let's say you you have a product, your uh, manufacturing product, you you have demand, you you have sales. When does when to you does um, when you think about the fin different financing uh, mechanisms um, uh, to actually um, for that inventory, when does debt financing make sense as opposed to cash? So I'm going to put on a little bit of financial nerd hat on and tell you, talk a little bit about the difference between equity and debt. And so equity value is created 
when you do something innovative inside the company or you can basically create value from selling a product. So we'll restrict it to physical product right now. So in physical products, you basically look at, I want to basically create and sell an iPhone. And so I you can create equity in three ways. You either sell a piece of the company to bring cash in at a valuation. Uh, you, you sell assets to basically bring money in or you make a profit on a transaction every time you do business. So that's the third way to do it. The biggest problem inside a brand or any kind of physical product company is if you don't have predictability of the actual revenue where I know if I make 100 units and I sell 100 units, I'm going to get $140 and I'm going to make it for $90. So I will make $50 every time I make 100 units like clockwork. That's predictability. At that point, every time you roll 100 units, you are adding $50 of equity to the company's balance sheet. At that point, you selling a piece of the company to add that $50 of equity is more expensive than you borrowing $90 for like, I don't know, five bucks, because now you get a 10x return on the borrowing. Because if you take your interest rate, whatever the value of interest you pay, and you take the amount of profit you make, that profit margin should be five times or 10 times the amount of interest you pay for you to then be able to justify that debt. Not to mention that every time you borrow the money and pay it back, you borrow it again and pay it back and borrow it and pay it back. It's like rinse and repeat. The difference with a really functioning inventory cycle is like, you know, when you put your clothes in the rinse cycle, they get worn down every time you wash them. Here, every time you put them in, if it's a successful inventory cycle, it generates cash like a machine. And to do that, that's when you get that. Got it. Really, really appreciate that in terms of in, in terms of when when cash makes sense and also when when debt makes sense. We have another question here from uh, from George. Um, how do you ensure IP protection if you help to finance manufacturing and additional downstream activities? Does your financing include legal review and filing, and do you stake any claim in IP? Yes, uh, it includes a legal review and we have actually protected IP for our customers with Chinese vendors. We have legal representation in China. We actually signed legal documents with the vendors. Uh, we work with the vendors to make sure that we are completely covered. It doesn't mean it's like an ironclad blanket because at the end of the day, your IP, like we talked about on the Amazon sites, can be circumvented by legal laws anyways. But what we do is work with the vendor to make sure that they do not peddle your products to other countries without your permission. And we've actually enforced claims against this. No manufacturer does not have any stake on your IP. We do not take any equity in companies we work with. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, uh, thanks for that. That's, that. that's really helpful. So, for example, if that, if you were a brand and you did have, um, you did have a manufacturer start, start also producing your own products. Um, if you were, you know, working with manufacturer, then we can obviously try to help you on that, on the, on that side too, and, and protect your IP. Um, how, um, how do you think a brand should go about or launch new SKUs? Um, if they maybe not like, um, maybe not entering necessarily like a new category, maybe, maybe in the current category, but how do you think about um, when it's your own supply chain, making sure that you're not having to introduce a whole new supply chain um, uh, and, and, and kind of the, the commonalities for new SKUs in terms of your product, um, your current product assortment. Yeah, it, it, there's two types of product SKUs addition. One is an incremental product addition, which is okay. I make a wooden wooden bed. Could I make a wooden crib? 
from the same wood while I'm making the bed. There's obvious economies of scale, there's obvious economics of product, and I could basically sell them as a package or I can sell them because not, not the best example, but I'm, I'm just giving you an idea. Or I want to sell a wooden bed, I sell the same book, I sell a bookshelf from the same wood because I can make them both from the same wood. That's an incremental product, which is like a family product. You can actually add on and incrementally do it. The other way to do it is I sell a bookshelf. Now I want to sell a rug for the for the for the for the bed and so that's a completely different product different materials different supply chain different build and sometimes you know entrepreneurs may think that the rug would go well with the bed but the idea of creating a rug supply chain is a whole separate beast than actually creating a bookshelf supply chain and in terms of manufacturing and financing those products even though you sell them as packages they're two completely different activities got it got it and um so i think we're, we're almost out of time here um, my final question to you, Pranay, is if you were a brand, what would you value more? $100 of inventory or $100 cash? Um, I would value $100 in inventory if I know my demand is solid. That's a great, great response. Ma makes a lot of sense. If you have any any type of margin, then that $100 inventory is worth $100 more than cash. Um, 100%. Pranay. Thank you. So that's a bit on the uh, manufacturing side for this webinar. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Up, Renee. Um, so our next speaker is David Miller. David Miller is the vice president at Extensive. Extensive is a visionary technology leader focused on creating the future of omnichannel fulfillment. Um, so naturally on this one, we're going to be talking about 3PLs, fulfillment, um, and that side to um, to operations for customer brands. Uh, so, so David, welcome. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Great. Thank you so much again for your time. And again, if, if, if you do have questions, folks that are listening live, um, please let us know. We really want to try and make this as, as helpful as possible. Um, so David, if you're a brand, when should, a, when should you consider outsourcing your logistics? Is there, is there a typical revenue threshold? Yeah, so something that's a good question, but sometimes we don't see that so much at the at the revenue side. We see inflection points in terms of things like order volume and complexity within somebody's operation. So if you think about like an early stage brand, you know, as they gear up, maybe they're using some really basic point solutions, maybe it's world ship for some basic shipping. Uh, but there's these inflection points that say I've hit a hundred orders a day, maybe two hundred orders a day. And like when that sort of volume starts clicking within someone's fulfillment operation. That's when they really start to think about how am I going to scale this or build this out with some sort of process. And so if you really want to think about like the doubling of volume, you know, from 100 to 250 to 500 to 1000 to 2500, those are sort of the levels where people really start to think about what is my fulfillment strategy going to be? And ultimately, where, where we see people finding value and they start to do some looking for outsourcing, that really is about that 200 orders a month like volume, because at that point, you really do need some sort of inventory control. You do need some sort of process in place. Maybe you've got an additional employee that would be sort of concentrating on the inventory piece of it. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, when we really start to think about it, it's not always the, the revenue generation that's happening, right? It really has to do with how much transactions are happening that is driving somebody to look for a 3PL or a better fulfillment solution than they may have internally. Well, can you talk a little bit about what what like the true advantages maybe of a 3PL versus like self-fulfilling is? Yeah. So, you know, the 
I've I've been on the 3PL side for a long time, but we work with thousands of brands and the, the I always find them really interesting because they always have sort of really interesting stories, right? You know, it's college roommates that sort of scheme together in their dorm room to solve a problem. Or it's the, you know, it's the adventurer who's out hiking and they have this epiphany and they came up with this great idea. And what we find that brands, like people that run brands, they're entrepreneurs, they want to do sales and marketing, and they want to schmooze at industry events, and they really want to concentrate on sort of the sales side and the creativity side of the business. And let's be honest, like fulfillment is not glamorous. Uh, and so if you really want to think about how does a, a brand and someone that's focused on selling and solving problems, like how do they excel? Right. It's by getting rid of all of the things that they're maybe not as competent as or the things that they don't find to be as interesting or as exciting. And so at that point, we find that marrying your creativity as a brand with fulfillment expertise at a 3PL really kind of gives you the best of both worlds. It's all of the expertise of fulfillment, allowing you and freeing up all of your time and resources to go and build your brand and be a better business. And so that's where I see that bifurcation of things happening. Um, where brands can do sort of that that concentration of what's important to them and outsource all the stuff that's not glamorous to somebody else. Got it. So yeah, it makes sense in terms of when to actually kind of be vertically integrated, when to actually not be vertically integrated and um, and kind of let let someone else do that lift, which would be which would be like a uh, a three pl partner. Um, in your mind, I, I feel like the the word optimize gets thrown mm -hmm. around uh, thrown around a bunch, to be honest, whether it's, you know, on the marketing side, whether it's on the manufacturing side, whether it's on the shipping side, in the three PL for like invent for like inventory management and also logistics, what does that actually mean to you in terms of having like an optimized three PL partner? Yeah, so I mean, three PLs are there to serve a brand, so it kind of means the same thing to a certain extent. Right? It's by having the right products in the right place at the right time in a way that can be delivered successfully and cost efficiently. Right? Like we want to optimize around all of those things. I think where 3PLs really excel at that type of operation, though, is it's, it's sort of the data collection and nuance of all of the things that need to come together to be able to achieve that optimization, right? Products in the right spot, how quickly can we get them delivered, how are we going to execute, et cetera. And so that's going to play into things like maybe demand forecasting, right? How accurately can we predict um, where products need to be, how many are going to sell, where should they be distributed? Um, the inventory management techniques, right? What are the carrying costs going to be? How do we help reduce stockouts? Um, staging products closer to the point of consumption, like those things become really important. Ultimately hitting some sort of service level agreement, right? If products need to be shipped out same day, next day, uh, delivered in two days, et cetera, like 3PLs are gonna be very in tune to those types of requirements and really be able to help execute on all of those things. And probably the biggest thing that a 3PL is going to be able to do to help really optimize, it's around that transportation spend, right? So this is rate negotiations. These are, I think Pranay mentioned economies of scale. Like this is the opportunity for a brand to be able to take advantage of hundreds of other brands potentially with those economies of scale. Um, that really goes to lowering rates, um, again, better carriers and services, maybe even finding carriers and services that are outside of the big three. Uh, regional carriers outside of UPS, FedEx, you know, part postal service, like those things are gaining more traction and having more access and insight into those types of businesses like become really important for final mile delivery for brands. And again, that all goes into that delivery speed, keeping costs down, um, which I think all really plays into the optimization conversation for how 3PLs are helping brands today. How 
how also do you think about maybe nimbleness of of a 3pl especially for like growing brands because i talked to brands who you're very very happy with the 3pl provider i've also talked to brands that yeah. had um that had a 3pl and was actually it was it was so much of a headache that they actually preferred to um uh, to actually um, in-house and, and fulfill themselves um mm-hmm. because they aren't nibble and kind of need long lead time so how do you think about in the world of 3pl what does kind of like that like nimbleness uh, mean to you, especially when, you know, maybe you have like a new PO that needs to be, uh, fulfilled really quickly or, or e-commerce sales have just, you know, skyrocketed. Um, um, and you know, maybe you have like uh, unexpected events in a good way, but needing to kind of be fulfilling on that side. Yes. You know, certainly, certainly finding the right three PL for your business becomes a really important part of that conversation. Um, there are some things that we, we look at because it's expensive to find a 3PL and it's very expensive to change a 3PL, quite honestly, right? So we want to make sure we get it right the first time. So when we would look at this as an as an opportunity, it's, it's not just always about the lowest rate, right? Sometimes it's about geography, like that becomes important. But like we even find things like cultural fit um, to be something that's really important, right? Like can our businesses really work together as partnerships? Because that's what a 3PL ultimately is. As a brand, you are reliant on a third party, right, to, to really be an extension of your business and make all of these things work for you. And so you're you're giving them, right, you know, part of your business almost. And so when we think about it, you know, the first step here is making sure that when you do find a 3PL, it's not just about the dollars and cents. It's about finding the one that's really going to be the right partner for you. The other thing is that we ultimately see is a an over exaggeration of how well the business is going to flow. And so where I see brands start to get themselves in trouble are when they project that there's going to be a lot of growth and then maybe those milestones don't come as quickly. And at that point, again, having good partnerships and communications with your 3PL, that's what's going to keep that relationship going. At some point, 3PLs will start to look to see how are we going to potentially change or shift some of this business. And so, again, being upfront, being conservative and being realistic about the types of business that you're going to bring is a really important um, component to those negotiations. And again, even if you're paying maybe a slightly higher price point with a 3PL, the idea that they're going to be there to grow with you is also going to be important. Um, Beyond that, like I find 3PLs have lots of resources to help growing businesses really move in a dynamic way. Uh, so we start to see things like network effects, uh, distributed inventory and 4PL is becoming a really key component to the entire fulfillment strategy today. Being single threaded and having your product in one location, like that is not the way that you're meeting consumer expectations today, or at least being able to do that cost effectively. 3PLs that are running better technology stacks and have more grasp on the future of supply chain and understanding sort of fulfillment 4.0. The real intent is that 3PL is going to guide you to the next step of growth and innovation within your fulfillment strategy. Um, And so if you're working with businesses that aren't there to help you grow, chances are you may want to look for another 3PL, right? those, Those become real conversations to have. Got it. No, no, that's uh, that's great insight. Can you can you uh, tell us? No, uh, obviously, three PL third party logistics. Can you break us down a little bit of the difference the difference between a three PL and a four PL? Yeah, <clears throat> if you search this on Google, you'll get a thousand different answers, and, and don't even bother asking Chat GPT because I'm not sure that, that <laughs> that's going to be super accurate today either. Um, 
when we think about 3PL, at least the way that we define it over here, like a 3PL is going to be a, a third-party warehousing business that provides fulfillment and, and logistics services on behalf of brands. Think about this as just a very simple single warehouse that is managing inventory, visibility, shipping for lots of different brands. And they do that in what we would call a public space or a public warehouse as a 3PL. When we talk about 4PL, really what we're doing is we're talking about the managed outsourcing of multiple 3PLs. So the idea being that you would hire or you would contract a 4PL service. In reality, they are outsourcing portions of your business to multiple different 3PLs but they're able to connect all of those 3PLs through certain pieces of technology. Again, they're able to take advantage of those economies of scale. We find that in a 4PL world where you have multiple different 3PLs working together, they may all have different core strengths, wholesale versus direct-to-consumer shipping. Um, maybe they have different services that they're offering where you would have a cold storage component alongside a uh, ambient good component. Um, they would have different geographic diversity, et cetera. Again, working with a single 3PL becomes important when you want to maintain as much control as you can with a, a single entity with sort of that one throat to choke. The beauty of the 4PL is now you can take advantage of all of these different services and all of these other geographies and all of these different core components. And you still have that one throat to choke because you're going to ultimately have sort of one owner of, of a, a 4PL network that's ultimately going to manage or maintain all of those different 3PL components for you. No, that's that's really helpful. Thank you. What? How do you think, because I know you, you talk about, we, we talk about kind of geography a lot. Yep. Um, how do you think about the right locations when you're working with brands for warehousing in order to mitigate shipping costs. Yeah. There's, there's a ton of stuff that goes into that. Like, I mean, you can get really deep in terms of the analytics and there's some services out there that can really help with this as well. Um, but when I look at emerging brands or maybe those brands that are doing a thousand orders a month, um, it's really simple just to take all of your order destination data, break it out into an Excel spreadsheet, sort it by state, and then maybe break the country down into sort of quadrants as well as like an international component. And you'll very quickly start to see where is my, um, you know, where's the concentration of my order volume going? If you've got good distribution across the country, maybe a centralized location starts to make sense. Um, if you are seeing different pockets based on, you know, population, again, that's where we really start to see the need or the thought behind how do we do some geographic uh, diversion of our products. The two or three things that become really important there when you think about placing inventory, one is you've got to know your market. If you're selling snow shovels, chances are you want to put those closer to you know cold weather locations. And if you're selling bathing suits, you're probably going to want to keep those somewhere where it's warmer. I mean, those things just start to make sense. Having the ability, though, to split your inventory and your quantities by skew specific becomes really important. And so when I start to see somebody thinking about geographic distribution of their products, Typically, what they'll do is they will take their five to 10 highest performing SKUs, and those are the ones that they will then start to move into a secondary facility with the ability to then sort of ramp up or scale in. How well did this project go? Hey, we're selling really well. Let's add in some additional SKUs. So again, having the ability to do order routing by you know not just state, but also by individual SKU, et cetera, and then being able to have the role of a visibility of inventory becomes really critical to sort of managing that type of operation. 
I would say this, that if you're well-formed, you can reach 80% of US consumers in cost-effective two-day delivery just by having two or three distribution points. Like it's not that that hard, um, but at the end of the day, like it does take effort. And, you know, there are things that you should be thinking about, you know, in terms of inventory availability and cash flow that would, that would also become components of deciding where and how and when you would diversify your inventory to multiple facilities. How, how, um, we've, we've also seen the percentage of returns increasing. <laughs> um, and what pressure does that put on the loan centers and what are some of the costs that are affiliated? Cause you have to then re it, if you're able to resell a product, you have to repack as a product to be sold again. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't, this isn't like a great story necessarily, but I mean, I've recently had some situations where I've tried to return products and the vendor essentially said, just, just don't return it. Right. right. Like it, it just it just cost too much and the item was pretty low value. And so this brand rather forego the return altogether just because it is so costly to, you know, to, to process it, QA it, repackage it, put it back on the shelf, et cetera. Um, you know, when I think about the major cost drivers for returns today, right, obviously the transportation becomes a pretty big component of that. How do you even get it back and where is it returning to? The receiving process for a return is, is typically two to three times the receiving cost of a general item coming in for manufacturing, the uh, QA inspection that's going to have to happen, potentially there's refurbishment, the repackaging, or maybe there's disposal that even needs to happen to a certain extent. Like all of that's going to drive up the cost of that return. And so I've seen a couple of things. I've seen certain 3PLs just, just tap out of that part of the business and they don't even want to handle those types of returns. I've also seen other 3PLs really just... Um, sort of spin up what we would call like a reverse services or reverse logistics service. That, that's all they do is they concentrate on that returns process. The things that I find slightly concerning about returns is that if you've got maybe a, a, a non-breakable, non-perishable, really basic item, like some clothing or whatever, like making a return and making sure, hey, this makes sense, that, that, that's fine. But when I start to think about electronics, or watches or things that are more high end, all of a sudden, the need for that QA inspection to validate, is this actually the item that we shipped? Does this need to be refurbished? What is the actual problem with this item? Have we gone through and done all of the testing? At, at, there's, a, there's a threshold that says it's worthwhile to handle these returns versus not. I would say that a good majority of brands today, especially those that are on the higher end, are still wanting to manage their own returns in-house. So yes, we can ship out of a 3PL and yes, we understand the high value and yes, we can mitigate for all of these things. When returns are coming back, this is definitely an area where we start to see brands really be focused on managing the return themselves or looking for a 3PL that specializes in this reverse logistics that can help with more parts of the, the process. It's not unusual to see two different 3PLs working in tandem one for all of the shipping and fulfillment, and then one for the reverse logistics piece. That's that's really interesting. Uh, yeah. We have we have um, uh, a question here from George. Oh, sure. um, what advice can you offer how to find the best three PL and four PL candidates who specialize in his focus category, which is personal accessories, mm -hmm. and how also out of like maybe a little bit more in terms of how to break down the cost? What is the average uh, percentage markup that a, that that three PLs charge? Yeah. So a couple, a couple good uh, notes on how to find a 3PL. Referrals are always key. 
Um, you know, if you go to Google and just type in something like three PLs near me, you're not going to be able to tell one from, from Adam, quite honestly. So referrals work in a couple of different ways. One is look for other brands that are in your space and try to understand or try to figure out or maybe ask the questions, who are you using as your 3PL provider? And maybe start your search there as a, as a good opportunity to sort of open those conversations. Um, you know, the other area that I would start to look at are, are working with businesses that have extensive experience with 3PLs. And so, for example, we at Extensive, we have a marketplace of high performing 3PLs that we can manage metrics and SLAs and understand how well they perform. And we list those out as a service to them to help bring in more business, quite honestly. But you mentioned something within your question that's really important. You sell personal accessories you really want to only focus on 3PLs that know how to fulfill for that personal accessories and in, in, in healthcare or whatever it may be becomes really important. And so we mentioned earlier on, I think in the conversation, um, hey, economies of scale, how do you just get involved with the best practices that they already know? That's going to help keep your costs low. Um, and then also just knowing that they know how to service your product specifically. So that specific vertical. When you start to look at something like our marketplace, it does break it down by those specific vertical needs and service level needs. Again, the idea there, when you get that referral, it becomes really high value, right? It's expensive to find a 3PL. It's very, very expensive to switch your 3PL. You wanna make sure that you get it right. So starting that search in the right spot becomes really, really important. Um, and again, so referrals and then things like a marketplace become good opportunities to sort of find those 3PLs. Um, I talked a lot, Mike, but I have one more thing to say on this, I think. Go for it. Um, Go for it. Just, you know, you, you, I, I can't get into the specific cost breakdowns. I can tell you that 3PLs run on very, very low margins on the fulfillment side of the house. The more standard your product and your operational needs are as a brand, the better you're going to be able to negotiate those contracts. So if you're expecting a white glove service, 3PLs are very happy to do that for you. The inserts, the picking, the packing, the kitting, the assemblies, the gift baskets, like all of that's great and definitely leverage them. You would start to see that you're gonna be paying more of a white glove service for those types of things. If you can conform to a best practice, that's where you're gonna have your greatest strategic advantage for those negotiations. So just see if you can't sort of keep it within those con constructs and that's gonna be your best bet to lowering your costs. I appreciate that, David. And I think, I think to your point in terms of which 3PL is best to you, finding a um, a 3PL that has actually dealt in that category, because I would imagine, for example, like let's say you're a beauty personal care company versus a you know furniture brand. Where a furniture brand, you have you know obviously huge products. Um, uh, the average order values are are probably pretty big, but mm -hmm. the, the the frequency of purchases are not so big. Uh, so you're always probably shipping to, um, to different locations. Whereas in beauty personal care, you might have, um, you know, obviously much smaller products. Um, mm -hmm. and, and at the same time, um, a lot of maybe repeat purchase rate, if, if, if the company is going well, um, whether it's like, you know, three months or, or six months down the road. So, um, and kind of understand like a three PL that actually can understand the different kind of parts of the business and kind of what makes it tick. Yep. For sure. What are some of the challenges in in, in your view? And, and and also I appreciate you saying how, you know, obviously 3PLs is not a a, a high margin business. It's a volume business. Mm -hmm. um, but what are what are some of the challenges that 3PLs are are facing today? Yeah, um, I mean, like any industry, right? 3PLs are always going to have, you know, challenges. And then hopefully they find the opportunities sort of within those. Um, 
up until extremely recently, I mean, some of the basics were just finding additional warehouse capacity and space to store items, put items in. Um, you know, there are, I mean, there's probably 30 or 40 markets in the U.S. where the vacancy rate for some of the industrial space is below 1%, right? Like it, it's just wow. it's very hard to get. Uh, and then you start to see the, the, you know, the, the raising of rates and things of that nature. So these three PLs that don't own their own facilities, that don't own the property, like they're in a situation where they're, they're, they're going to be challenged. Um, similarly, the, you know, warehousing rates or the, the cost for warehouse employees these days, if you can even find people that are willing to come into work, I mean, those rates have raised from 12, $13 an hour, almost up to $20 an hour now, like there are expectations being set. So, I mean, we've, we're seeing a, a 50 to 75% increase in, in those rates. So quite honestly, just financial considerations from a, a 3PL perspective are probably top of mind for most 3PLs today. Um, I think there's a couple other things though that aren't financial that that 3PLs are probably starting to get really involved with. Um, these are going to be things like how are they going to take advantage of AI and how is that going to be disruptive to them? What's the technology that they really need to be running to advance the next level, right? So warehouse space is tight, we have to be more efficient. Warehouse labor is really expensive, we have to be more efficient. Like, how do you do those things? Well, we invest in technology to help sort of extend our walls and then ultimately reduce our costs. So like, how are we gonna take advantage of those things? And then I think you know, there's another segment that we're hearing quite a lot about today from a challenge perspective. And I think this probably affects everybody. Um, it really has to do with things like cybersecurity and I mean, security in general, but cybersecurity, GDPR, right to be forgotten, consumer information, uh, you know, those are things that, again, you know, five years ago, 3PLs, they didn't even think about it, right? Like I'm, I'm running a warehouse, I'm using Excel, whatever. Now all of a sudden they've got brands coming to them and they're saying, you've got all of my customers' personal information. You can't have that. How are we going to solve for that and what that's going to look like? So all of a sudden we're trying to take a historically slow to adopt market in terms of 3PLs to technology. And all of a sudden we're just, you know, they're drinking from the fire hose today. And so how quickly are they going to be able to catch up? Um, how much technology are they going to be able to leverage? And then how are they really going to use this? And this is the opportunity piece of all of those challenges. How do they use all of that efficiency that they can gain from these things to really provide a better service to their brand customers. And I think that's going to be the important part for everybody to figure out over the next couple of months. No, that's, um, that's, um, really appreciate that, David. Um, well, I think that we're, we're out of time and, uh, definitely learned a lot here about fulfillment and how to think about three uh, PL or just logistics in general. Um, really appreciate it, uh, David, for your time. I think now we're going to move on to, uh, um, David field, um, where we're going to be talking about, uh, how to, uh, how, what you should be thinking about expanding, um, internationally. Um, so David Field is the head of strategic accounts at Passport. Passport is an international shipping carrier built for e-commerce companies and the three PLs. Uh, some of their, some of their, um, some of the companies that they've helped include uh, Kylie Cosmetics, um, Native Deodorants and uh, Bombas. So um, we're going to be, so, so this part of it is we're going to be focusing on how to think about international expansion for your consumer brand. Uh, so David, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. How you doing, Mike? Good, good, doing well. And again, if anyone is listening live, please, if you have any questions, 
regarding um, if you're thinking about going international, if you already have internet or you're already international and you've, you have um, some questions regarding your business, please let us know. We're, um, we're more than, more than happy to answer. Um, so David, let's start from the, like kind of a beginning. When should a brand be thinking about expanding internationally in your mind? Is there like a revenue threshold um, uh, for it or, or should they be thinking about it day one? Mike, uh, all the time. The, uh, the second you start a brand, you know, uh, we, we joked about this before. Um, it's important that you uh, immediately look at international right out the gate. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, the size of the market is going to be important because that's going to be the determinant about understanding what your potential customer base is for that brand. You need to check tools regularly like uh, similar web, do research see if uh, people are naturally interested in your product, right? So uh, that's one avenue. There's a couple others like uh, market growth, the future potential of the sales of your product, uh, you know, to fully execute a, you know, a strong go-to-market strategy internationally, you're going to need to understand what that potential is. You know, is there uh, an avenue and a path forward to, um, you know, in that particular international market? The competitive landscape is also extremely important. What other brands do you have that are um, you're competing up against that are in that market? Uh, and then, uh, you know, cultural factors, um, you know, it's something that is kind of overlooked in my opinion, but, you know, brands need to adapt. They need to understand um, like their product, their market strategies, um, and then understand what the needs are of that local market to be able to do that. And as David Miller uh, just discussed, um, having a very sound, um, you know, plan thought out fulfillment strategy is going to be very important. Um, and if you're looking for fulfillment, you have to uh, ask yourself, are you looking at fulfilling, you know, in the U.S.? Are you looking at fulfilling uh, locally in another country overseas? Um, and part of that strategy, you know, comes down to the type of shipping carrier that you're going to be working with. I, I know, for example, a postal carrier, um, an integrated courier like a DHL, FedEx, UPS, a consolidator like Passport, you know, with all that considered, um, you know, I think if you can crunch the numbers and understand what uh, revenue is available, what margin is potentially there from a profit standpoint, a brand could consider, you know, what the expansion would look like internationally. How how should you assess what type of shipping carrier you should actually use when you actually expand internationally? What are some of the co uh, considerations that you need to think about? You know, um, it's going to be based on, you know, what the, the relationship is with that particular. Um, there's, there's multiple factors there. That's a, a very loaded question. Um, but you definitely want to consider the, the relationship of, of that particular courier in those markets that you're trying to expand into. You want to look at what is the demand from the consumer's standpoint on what it is that they're looking to, you know, do they want a, a quick service? Is this a time sensitive product? Is the product something that, um, you know, is a higher value? Is it lower value? I think understanding, you know, the scope of that will really help to determine, you know, if the, if it's a good product fit for you know, like an integrator, for example, um, where it might be uh, a faster KPI, Getting that into you know the country could be a one to three day delivery commitment, um, where you might look at like USPS who 
defaults everything to um, duties and taxes unpaid. They don't have offer a duties and taxes prepaid service yet. And, uh, you know, leveraging a um, less trackable solution might not be um, you know, advantageous for a brand that's trying to get something in a timely manner, but getting it there in, um, you know, 10 days or, or 20 days, that could be a good solution. So it really depends upon like the product, the fit and uh, the needs for that. Got it. And what, um, when you're, when you're, when you're thinking about, I know that a lot of us brands, their first foray into international typically is Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, why apart from, of course, geographically, you're not actually going overseas, right? It's a lot, it's, 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 it's much easier to expand into Canada from like a shipping logistics, um, uh, point to you because you, you kind of go back to what you said when you think about what 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 new markets you should expand into and cultural factors should you know you should also be thinking about that and of, and of course obviously the the competitive set in your own category but why in in, in your mind why does canada um some of the attributes that 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 makes it a compelling international market from a u.s perspective um there's a couple of factors um uh, obviously um, you know, it's landlocked with the United States. Mm -hmm. So, uh, from a geographical standpoint, it's extremely convenient to get materials into Canada. Um, and then you have, you know, uh, trade agreements between the U S uh, Canada and Mexico, USMCA, uh, formerly known as NAFTA. Uh, so that allows, you know, Canada to be a, uh, a pretty good first market. Um, when you look at the U.S. export because of, you know, cultural um, alignment with, you know, first languages being in English, most Canadians are willing to pay for, you know, products in USD. So uh, the opportunity for e-commerce in Canada is big and it's growing. Um, and I, you know, that's, it's a great market for U.S. Uh, and a good first step market when you're looking to expand outside of uh us to us that that makes a ton of sense how how can you ensure as well uh maybe this kind of goes back to your to the carrier question but how do you ensure as well when you're expanding to a new market that you that, that you actually have from a logistic standpoint um uh, like a really great customer experience what does that what does it actually look like to you uh you know it, it's so there's um what's happened over the years with Amazon, uh, providing, you know, a, let me leave it at your doorstep e-commerce. Um, if you look at like the last 10 years, mm -hmm. that's really taken place here in the U S and I think from a U.S. you know, um, consumer myself, um, uh, also for us merchants, you know, we've become a little spoiled to understanding what that means internationally. Uh, and as you expand and grow internationally, the experience of course is to take that, uh, same experience that we've had here and expanding that cross-border. And so uh, an easy way to do that, obviously, it would be um, through, you know, the checkout where um, the consumer gets into the checkout and pays for duties and taxes. It arrives into country prepaid so that uh, the, you know, final mile uh, provider will then deliver the parcel and leave it on the doorstep just as if it were the same here in the US. Um, that's a um, relatively 
it's, been, it's an eco term that's been around for a while, but it's relatively uh, gained a lot of traction that um, I think you're going to see over the next several years going to uh, gain more traction. Um, we're, you know, we're having this webinar right now. And if I'm in Canada and a, a courier came to my door, I might have to stop what I'm doing and go downstairs and open the door, sign off a package, you know, um, which is not obviously the most customer um, centric mode. So uh, it makes a lot uh, more convenient when you actually can get, um, you know, that paid for at the time of the checkout versus uh, paid for at the time of delivery. So that's, and that's kind of trans and that's, and that's kind of going from model where you're, where you're doing um, delivery duty paid, right. Where, um, where the actual seller assumes um, the costs of, of and, and paying for customers and, and, and taxes and duty um, rather than um, rather than the buyer bearing the cost and, and tax and that sort of thing. And that's why it, for, right. for in, in place, that's why you, as a customer, you actually have to go and sign um, sign the document uh, because you were actually the one bearing the costs uh, technically. Um, uh, so, and so, I mean, it seems like in terms of it, it seems like, oh, here we go. We have, a, we have, a, we have another question. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about customs duty mitigation when shipping for personal consumption and the documents needed when shipping those directly versus shipping bulk for local fulfillment? You know, that's, um, there's a, a lot of different ways to answer that question. Uh, the, the easiest answer is that when you're shipping internationally for e-commerce, the importer of record in each country uh, is typically going to be the consumer. So uh, if you're doing it in bulk, you're more than likely doing a business to business transaction, uh, not a business to consumer transaction, right? And that is going to go to either a wholesale distribution location um, and then as that gets cleared for customs, the importer of record in that case is more, more than likely going to be the brand. So, um, you know, they have to the front the duties and taxes upon that um, delivery. But from a small parcel standpoint, if it's um, being shipped, you know, internationally, the importer record then falls on the onus of the consumer and not on the brand. So it makes it a lot more convenient. Now, the other factor is, uh, you know, de minimis values. So um, from, the, from the standpoint of each country that you're, you know, importing into, um, each, like the United States, de minimis value is $800. Each country has their own limit, where if you ship a um, item that's underneath that, that limit, it'll clear duties and taxes free, or it should say duty free into that country. Uh, and, you know, that's obviously built based on um, the relationships between, you know, previously um, like SOFA agreements between countries. So. Got it. Got it. Um, really, really appreciate, uh, really appreciate that. How, how should also brands when they're going into, I know that you mentioned, you know, I guess the, the the really good part about Canada is that a lot of their, um, is that a lot of their, um, citizens are, can buy or used to maybe buying, you know, USD in USD. Um, how should brands also be thinking about new, uh, about different currencies when they're, um, when they're expanding maybe beyond Canada, um, and, 
and uh, yeah the 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 order management tools that are available today um, offer a lot of this as part of their value services so um, it's very common um, if you're using Shopify you can leverage Shopify markets uh, where you know they offer different currencies that are available um, so that when you're placing your checkout uh, it does like an, an IP grab of whatever country you're purchasing from and uh, displays the you know the product in that local currency right um, there's many other tools that are out there um, apps that are available for that uh, and of course that's extremely important uh, helpful you know from a consumer standpoint if I um, you know don't want, don't want to deal with like the currency conversion or you know the, the fees that go into, into place um, you know there's currency exchange fees and and those are incurred you know when you convert a brand's you know home currency into the currency of whatever destination country and um, it's oftentimes you know better to try to mitigate that and that's a possible you know uh, a way to do that got it got it now that's that makes a lot of sense and what volume in your mind i know that you said um in terms of thinking about international or going international you shouldn't be maybe focused on volume you should go there day one or be or be thinking about at that as your strategy in day one but in terms of but what volume does it make sense to maybe establish your own fulfillment centers uh maybe establish maybe your own you know maybe if, if it's three if it's a 3pl um in an international market instead of you know shipping um directly to, to consumers from your from your home market you mean that so the, to clarify that question when should i uh, expand and to do my fulfillment in another country yes okay um you know that's going to be a case-by-case -case scenario um if you're partnered with a 3pl like through like uh, the extensive network um you know they have partners that are all over the world uh if you have uh, the right market demand in those countries it will align perfectly for that um you know, it's, I don't know the actual answer to like, like at what, like volume threshold, mm -hmm. because I think it's going to vary and be dependent on the type of product that you're, you know, that you're shipping and the AOV value. Um, you know, so it's really difficult to answer, you know, like a, a generalization of like when to expand internationally on like local fulfillment, but it is a, a huge market. It's growing. Um, and uh, definitely, if you're a, um, a mid enterprise to, uh, you know, large, I'd say the billion dollar plus brand level, local fulfillment is is definitely in your strategy. Um, you know, from that perspective, I think you'll see some of the mid to enterprise level um, as well that it may expand into that as, uh, based on, you know, again, based on market demand um, in countries that might have more of a, um, an appetite for your product. You know, if it's like Europe, for example, it may make sense to have something that's fulfilled in Europe. Right. I mean, that, th that makes sense just because of course you're, you're shipping. Um, maybe it, it might make sense to, to, um, to expand, to do, uh, f fulfilling domestically in Europe, for example, as opposed to develop, uh, domestic domestically in Canada, just because of, you know, the geography, um, and, and, and where it is in, in location, in respect to the U.S., so, um, but that makes a lot of sense in terms of um, 
I mean, the, the volume could vary based off the category and, and, and how large you are. Um, Want to want to talk a little bit about customs? When what are the some of the reasons why your products might be held in customs when you're when you're when you're fulfilling it internationally? There's a lot of factors. I mean, if you're shipping to Brazil, it used to be that if you didn't have it signed in blue ink, it could be held. Um, you know, to you know, not having the correct country of origin, a generic description, um, not the correct. A harmonized tariff code or enough digits in the harmonized tariff tariff code um and you know i think um undervaluing is another reason where um some uh, brands may not realize the actual value of what they're sending or they're trying to um you know undermine the the customs process and they may put you know ten dollars when the the actual value of that item is a hundred dollars. Uh, and that's just like a, you know, make like a mitigation of duties and taxes. Uh, so then you get held with customs delays. Got it. Got it. No, no, I, I appreciate those reasons. And, um, <clears throat> I guess still on the subject of, of customs, I know we talked about, we, we, touched, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but delivery duty paid where it's the seller assuming the maximum responsibility and costs and, and risk, where and that would be if if your company is set up um with delivery duty paid and is and it's kind of on the seller um and the seller is already paid for um uh for for duty and, and, and the customs then um then it would be kind of similar what what you have here in the us you just kind of receive a package you don't have to sign for anything whereas you know deliver in place um the buyer bears the cost and so they actually need to sign off that they're bearing the cost um how, is there additional costs associated in terms of transferring from going deliver and deliver at place to to deliver duty paid? That's going to really depend upon the courier that you utilize for that service. But generally speaking, yes, um, the integrated couriers that go international, uh, DHL, FedEx, UPSs typically have a, um, a like a DDP DTP fee that's associated. It's a separate line item. Uh, some of the, uh, you know, consolidators have it built into their shipping rate, um, or they have some kind of disbursement lodgement fee that's built in like a broker fee on the back end of that. But yeah, typically there is an additional fee for duties and taxes prepaid. Got it. Got it. Okay. That, um, uh, okay. Got it. But I guess you have to think about then going back to kind of like the customer experience and me and, and, you know, I guess how you how you also can think about it is that it's a much better customer experience, customer experience if you actually have deliver duty paid rather than deliver at place place. Correct. And definitely also, um, you know, the, the consumer, um, you know, may look at that in more of a convenience as well. Um, from their angle is, you know, I'd rather have it just left on my doorstep versus in some countries you might have to actually go to like the local station facility to pick up your parcel. Got it. Right. 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 That's even, yeah. And that can be, um, that's not convenient to actually go to actually a, a, a local delivery in order to pick up your parcel, as opposed to, um, the delivery come to you and also you, you not have to sign for anything. So this is great, David. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks everyone for attending this webinar. I really, really hope it was useful. Thank you to our partners, um, extensive and passport for being part of this. Um, and we really hope this was useful when it comes to all things manufacturing fulfillment and also expanding internationally.